Well, we're coming to the end of our uh, study, um, study in the 11th chapter of Daniel. We're getting nearer to the end of the book itself. Now, in, in our study, we're looking at the things that are going to take place in the final days, the final days for Israel, and really the final days for the world as a whole, at least as far as the world that we know goes. What we're seeing in these last chapters is the course of events that Israel, the people of Daniel, are going to have to endure on their way into the kingdom of God. Not everyone that bears the name Jew or, is, or that is born into the physical nation of Israel will see the kingdom. There will be many who, because of their unbelief, will never experience that joy. But those that do, and especially those that are still alive when the kingdom comes to earth, will have to suffer through these events in time that we're talking about here in Daniel 11. We've spent a lot of our time in our study of Daniel going over the punishment, the discipline that Israel has had to experience due to their sin, due to their disobedience to God. In fact, they are yet experiencing that punishment, that chastisement from God, even today at this time. And the events that we've gone through so far in chapter 11 are but examples of that period of time, this time of the Gentiles. The first part of the chapter, really verses 2 through 35, was the angel relating to Daniel what would be in store for them. And as we look back through the history books and map out this prophecy to what we find there, we can see that those times were not pleasant for the Jewish nation. They were times that were characterized by great conflicts, which isn't surprising because when Daniel started relating this prophecy to us back in chapter 10, he said in verse 1, the message was true and one of great conflict. And throughout Israel's history, over and over again, that has proven to be true and still proves to be true. Israel is a land, it's a nation characterized by great conflict, just as God said. Now, throughout chapter 11, we saw the history of the nations that had marched through the Holy Land, um, back and forth, up and down. And if we can get the first slide uh, going, I know they're talking back there. Um, I just have a map on the first slide, if we can get the first slide. Whoever's got the slides. Thank you very much. So this is just a map of the region, um, and this was after divided after Alexander's time. Um, but we talked about these conflicts that were trampling Israel over and over on their way to conquer other nations, as well as pilfering and looting the land itself. And you can read a map, I'm sure, but you know Israel is right in that area there. We saw Alexander the Great's well, first of all, we saw the Persians come and go, and we saw the Persians cover, conquered by Alexander the Great in his lightning conquest of the world. And then we saw Alexander the Great's empire split into four parts after his death, with two of those parts directly north and south of Israel, so the Seleucus and the Ptolemy nations there, or areas there. And then we saw the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north warring back and forth across the nation. And as you can see, for them to war back and forth with each other, they would have to go right through Israel. So over the span of many years, they were fighting with one another. And that conflict reached its climax with the reign of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who to this point could be said to be the worst thing that has ever happened to the nation. He brutalized them, he killed them, he blasphemed God, he profaned the temple. He did many horrible things to God's people. But he was not the most horrible person that Daniel was going to be told of in this prophecy. And that was not the most brutal suffering that the nation would have to endure. That honor is reserved for the man who comes at the end of the chapter, these final verses of the chapter. And that's where we are in our study today. In verses 36 through 45, we have the angel relating to Daniel the coming of the man that we know best as the Antichrist. He's also known in scripture as the beast. He's known as the man of lawlessness. He's known as the little horn in Daniel chapter seven. There are many different names for him throughout the Bible, but in this chapter, he gets the name the willful king. 
And that's because of the first thing it says about him in verse 36, where it says, then the king will do as he pleases. He will do as he pleases. And so some people label him the willful king. Now, if you remember from our previous studies of chapter 7, 8, and 9, that the Antichrist is part of the fourth great kingdom, the revived Roman Empire. Part of the Roman Empire has come and gone, but it will someday be revived. It will someday somehow come into power again, and that's where this man will come in. In chapter 7, we went into great detail, seeing that he would arise from a ten-nation confederacy. And he will take out three of those ten nations or kings and he will assert authority over all the rest. He will come from Rome in some way and he will rule the world. I'm not going to stand here and tell you exactly how that happens because quite frankly I don't know. But somehow in some way he will come from Rome. And just as the Babylonians did and just as the Persians did and just as the Greeks did, he will do it again, but he will do it better and he will have more authority. He will be in charge of the world. Not only will he have the authority given to him by God, because we saw in Daniel chapter 4 that no one comes into authority in the world unless God gives him that authority. But he will also have all the authority given to him by Satan, the one to whom God has given all spiritual authority on the earth today. His authority will be complete, and as we just saw in Daniel 11.36, he will do whatever he pleases. His time will be at the end. It will be during the 70th week or that last week of Daniel. If we turn to the next slide. So there's our, our chart again of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And you have the 70th week clear over there on the on the right. So the great seven-year tribulation will be where his power and his influence are seen by the world. He will do as he pleases at that point in time. Now really, this started us into our look last time at the first four verses of this section about him where we really looked at his character. Those first four verses really deal a lot with the man and his character. The first thing that we saw was that he was willful, and we talked about that, right? That means that, um, that it is his will that will be done. He will be able to do whatever it is that he wants to do. There will be none to oppose him. There will be none to deny him everything. And when you have the authority of God and you have the authority of Satan on the earth, you have that authority. So he will have that great authority and power. But what else will be true of him? Well, he will be arrogant. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, it said. He will set himself up as God. We actually saw that best in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, which says he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's his arrogance. It's pretty arrogant, right? He will declare himself to be God. And this will then lead to his abomination. At the end of verse 36 where it said, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. For this time period in which he is allowed to rule, he will do nothing but oppose, blaspheme, and attempt to thwart every plan of God. He will not succeed at thwarting God's plan, but that is what his focus will be on doing on the earth. Verse 37 really repeats this or affirms it by declaring that he will not honor, one, his father's gods, the false gods of his own family, two, the desire of women or the Messiah, he will not honor the one true God, and three, any other gods. There are no other gods at all that he will recognize other than himself. And that's the depth of his depravity. But verse 38 tells us that there's one thing that he will honor. It says, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. The one thing that this man will honor, that he will pour forth all of the riches and might at his disposal is going to be war. He will be a warmonger. He will be pouring forth 
everything into having the most powerful army the world has ever seen, and he will succeed at that. Verse 39 then said, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. He's going to be successful at all of this, going up against the strongest of fortresses, the most feared nations and armies, and with the help of a foreign god, and most likely this refers to his own war machine from verse 38, he will be able to rule the world. And those that are loyal to him will gain great reward. They'll be rewarded handsomely. And this is the character of this man that's coming, the character of the Antichrist. This is what he will be like. So now that we've seen his character through through verse 39, starting in verse 40, the angel goes into some details of the events themselves, the the conflicts that will be associated with him. So now that we've been introduced to him, what will he do? Just like with the other rulers that we've seen in this chapter, this is not an all-encompassing list, but it's enough to show some of his conflicts. Maybe it's the majority or the, the main conflicts. And I would take it that someday in the tribulation itself, after the tribulation, someone will be able to do what we just did with the rest of the chapter and take the events in these last few verses of the chapter and say, oh, this here was talking about this battle when the south attacked, uh, and this was when the east and the north did this, and we'll be able to look back through history at some point in time and see these events just like we did with the rest of the chapter. In the last verses here of the chapter, we're going to see some of his conflicts. And I'm assuming, again, that there will be more than this. Maybe these were the the most significant conflicts in his reign. Maybe these will be the battles that will define his rule in some way. We can't say for sure of these things, but we can be sure that these things will happen, and they will happen just as the angel presents them here. And so starting in verse 40, we'll take a look at them. Now, Let me just say one thing before we look at verse 40. We can't say with certainty exactly when during the seven-year tribulation that these things will take place, although I believe that they're early on. You can see in the chart the 70 weeks or the 70th week is split up into the two halves, the three and a half and the three and a half. And I believe that these events at least start in the first three and a half year period Uh, leading up to the midpoint and crossing through into the last half. And there's debate on when these events happen during the tribulation, as with many things in Daniel. But as I look at these events, I believe that they fall more likely in the three and a half years leading up to the great final conflict that Israel will endure in the last half of the seven years. Okay, so now, before I think of something else to add to the introduction, let's look at verse 40. And at the end, and at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. So what do we see here? There's a resuming of the conflict that has divined the chapter, right? We're getting into the conflicts once again. And again, let me point out the timing of these events. It says right there at the beginning of the verse, at the end time. Remember what we saw back in verse 35 where it said, and some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. If you remember in our discussion then, we were talking about the time period of Israel's discipline which goes right up until when? The end time, which is the time just prior to the coming of the Messiah and it's that 70th week. So that really tells us, once again, what time period this takes place within, the final week of the tribulation. Now, some say that the phrase, the end time, must mean that it's within the last three and a half years of that seven-year period, because that is closer to the actual end, but I don't think we need to be quite that exact in the terminology here. I think that once that treaty between Antichrist and Israel is put in place for the last seven-year period the world will be in the end time. Now during this time, what we have here is an uprising of some sort. This is a rebellion against Antichrist. Now the first three and a half years 
those are mostly characterized by peace. The Antichrist has taken over initially, at least, in a peaceful yet deceptive manner, even though his long-term plan will be one of destruction. I think even though he's going to be looking like a peaceful guy at first, he's always bent on destruction. Turn back with me to chapter 8 for just a minute, um, where we saw the characteristics of the Antichrist before. And look down at verse 23. It says there, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And if you remember from our study of chapter 8, to a certain degree you can associate this with Antiochus Epiphanes, but really this description will have its ultimate fulfillment in the ruler who will come to power in the latter portion of all the great kingdoms. And that is the final ruler of Rome, the Antichrist, the same person we're talking about in chapter 11. He will arise and be what? He will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. This means that not only will he, have a power, will he be powerful or fierce, but he's a manipulator, he's a thinker, he's a shrewd deceiver. Back in chapter 7, where we saw him as the little horn, his horn had eyes, and his eyes signified that he was extremely intelligent. And uh, we read on verse 24, still in Daniel chapter 8, and it says, And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and, per- prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Again, here is his power, and we've seen that as his focus. But now verse 25, it says, And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. So there's a balance between his might and his deception, his political mastery. He will come in speaking peace. He will put everyone at ease, even Israel at the beginning of all this. But then he will focus on his preparations for war. And keep something in mind. He will most likely, most probably be on the scene for some time before the seven-year tribulation. If you remember, the thing that kicks off that final week, that final seven-year period, is when he makes a treaty with Israel. He makes a covenant with them, a peace treaty. In order for him to make a treaty, he's got to already be in power at some point, in some way. How long he will have been in power at this point is anybody's guess. But a good portion of his army building may have already taken place before this happens, probably billing it as a peacekeeping force. So when the events of that 70th week take place, the Antichrist will already be on the scene and may already be well known and well on his way to fulfilling what we see here in this chapter. Now back in chapter 11, we see that during this time of peace that starts off that final 70th seven-year period, there will be uprisings. The north and the south are once again in view here. If you remember back to the first parts of the chapter, it was the north and the south going back and forth. And I would understand that these conflicts are most likely leading right up again to that mid-tribulation point, the 42nd month, the three-and-a-half-year mark. Possibly, this is what starts the downslide during the latter half of the tribulation itself. Keep in mind, he may be intelligent and good at politics, but the world is still filled with depraved humanity at this time people who are selfish at their very core. Even he won't be able to fool them or win them over forever, and they will rebel against him. So again, we have the north and the south in view here. Now the identification of north and south changes here a little bit. We're no longer talking about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and we're probably not talking about just Egypt and Syria either. Most commentators agree that these will be more massive forces in view that would come from further distances. 
And with the way the world is today, with the advancement of military machinery and things like that that we have, it's easy to understand how that could be the case, right? In the battles that we saw before, it was men marching on horses through that land. With the things that we know that we have today and who knows how long into the future this is going to be, obviously you can cover greater distances with, with weapons of war today. So the first attack comes from the king of the south. In the south, there will be an African confederation of some sort, possibly an Islamic confederation of some type. Many of the northern African nations are Muslim nations today, and it could even be that nations such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq could be involved in this coalition as well. Even though those nations are really east of Israel, they might ally themselves or ally themselves with these other African nations, the southern nations. The purpose or the intent will be to collide with him, it says, and attack on him, attacking the Antichrist. Why? The question has to be asked, and also how. How are they attacking him from, I don't have the map up there, but um, how are are they attacking him by going through that same area of Israel? Right? Because... What I mean by that is that some people question how is the Antichrist the one being attacked here when this is Israel that's in view. These nations are relative to Israel. This prophecy in the north and the south and the directions are relative to Israel. Before it was the north and the south attacking each other with Israel caught in the middle. They went back and forth battling across the land. Some explain this by saying that the Antichrist is the king of the north in this verse. And that since Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of him, that it would make sense that he was in the north and he was being attacked by the south. So what they would say is that when the phrase says the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him, the word him in both phrases refers to the other king. So you could read it, the king of the south will collide with the king of the north and the king of the north will storm against the king of the south. But I don't believe that that's really what's in view here. I think they are both attacking Antichrist in this event. And so the question remains, how are they attacking him? In what way are they attacking him? Well, the answer lies in the treaty that he has with the nation of Israel from back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. During the first half of the tribulation, he will make a treaty with Israel, one in which they will be living securely because they will be under his protection. They will feel secure in this treaty. But in the middle of the week, that all goes out the window. However, at the time that these attacks occur, the treaty would still be in effect. Therefore, an attack on Israel will be an attack on their allies, of which Antichrist is one of their allies, right? He has a treaty with them. It could be that Antichrist even dwells in the land. We know that he will set himself up as God in the temple shortly after this. It must be that as a condition of the treaty, he has established a sizable force in the land, maybe as protection, another peacekeeping force there. So really, I don't think it's hard to see how he is the one being attacked by these other forces. And so the king of the south will come up and attack him in the land, and that brings us to the north, where it says the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now the north is usually identified with farther north than just Syria. It's not just the immediate north Syrian area. and could very well be the land of Russia. In fact, I'm pretty sure that we're talking about Russia in some way. Some commentators point out that the word for north is a word that really means far north, which could indicate or would better indicate Russia. However, we need to be careful with that type of statement because as far as I can tell, the word for north used here is the same word used throughout the chapter. So if it means far north here, would it not mean that earlier on when it was referring to just Syria. So I don't think we can necessarily go by that. But I think the reason that this points 
to Russia is really found in other passages of Scripture, and that would be primarily in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 38, if you would. And I'm going to make an attempt to just point out a few things from this passage. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, I do have another slide on this, if we can switch to the next. Okay. Thanks, Josh. So starting in verse 1 of Ezekiel 38, we see this setup for what's going on uh, in this chapter. And it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. So here in these verses, we see the players involved in this chapter and in this prophecy here, all the different nations addressed by God through Ezekiel. God is telling Ezekiel to say these things to these different nations, this, this leader. What's significant here is where these nations are. By most conservative scholars, they are identified as being in the areas that are modern-day Russia and or Turkey, kind of up in the areas up in there. Um, the prince of these areas is named Gog, and he is from Magog. His area is in the north from Israel's perspective. So what will happen to them? Well, God is going to use their armies. He's going to put hooks into their jaws to lead them where he wants them to go and use them for his purpose. I think that's very descriptive language for God sovereignly using them however he wants to use them, right? I mean, it's... I'm going to put a hook in your jaw, and I'm going to take you wherever you want to go. You get the picture that they don't have a choice in this. God will use them in his plans. They won't have a say in that. Look at, look at verse 5. There's more. Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So there's more nations. Now, where are these nations located? They're to the south and to the east. Persia would be modern-day Iran, over there, over to the east there. Um, Ethiopia is Sudan, and it's not listed on here, but Cush down in that area would be where Ethiopia would be. Um, and Put, up over here, is Libya. And so they're down in Africa. And you notice that they're kind of grouped together here. The king of the south and Daniel 11. Then we have in verse 6, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Torgamah, from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. And you have Gomer and Torgamah on there as well. So once again, we have more from the north. So what we see here is the northern and southern forces in view here as well. They are in view together. However, the main focus here is in the northern forces. Now that we have the nations identified, here in Ezekiel 38, so what? I mean, this is Ezekiel 38, right? We're talking about Daniel 11. So why do we care about these nations? Well, what's the time frame in view here in what Ezekiel is hearing? After telling them to prepare themselves in verse 7, uh, look at what God tells them in verse 8. It says, after many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. So what do we see here? In the latter years, there's our first clue. Again, like we've seen in Daniel, this is down the road. He's talking about a long time from now, is what he's telling him. What will be going on in these latter years? Well, these nations will be summoned to come into Israel. God will sovereignly use them to invade Israel. Remember, bringing hooks, bringing them by hooks into their jaws. But at what time? Well, several clues that we see here in verse 8. It says, the land has been restored from the sword. 
Inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. People are living securely, all of them. So what we see here is that Israel is back living in the land. And I think, most importantly, it will be a time when they are at peace. And that will not occur in any part of Israel's history until when? Until the first part of the 70th week of Daniel, the time frame that we are dealing with in Daniel 11.40. Now in verse 9, Still in Ezekiel 38, we see more about their invasion, about how they will attack, coming like a storm. But then look at verse 10, where it says, Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Look at all that it says here in verse 11. Land of unwalled villages, at rest, live securely, living without wall, having no bars or gates. What is all that indicative of? Security and safety. Israel will be at a point where they are feeling very, very secure. And that's not just some confidence because they feel like they can protect themselves, but it's more like we don't even bother locking our doors at night kind of confidence, type of security. We don't need walls. We don't need locks on the doors. At this point in time, they don't think that they have a care in the world. Why? Why wouldn't they have a care in the world? Because this man, with the full might of his world-crushing army, is on their side. He is their ally. So what's happening here? These nations, north and south of Israel, see them living in peace and prosperity, see them living at the center of the world, and they devise an evil plan against them. This is the attack. This is the conflict. Now, we might say, but this is an attack against Israel in Ezekiel 38, and Daniel 11, again, is an attack against Antichrist. Exactly. Because, again, they are allied at this time, right? It's one and the same. An attack against one is an attack against the other. That's how alliances work, right? We all understand how alliances work. Uh, Example, if if Russia today attacks another NATO country like Germany, is that, that's an attack against Germany, but that's also an attack against the United States, right? Because we have an alliance with them. We will go to war if they attack another NATO country. So here, during the time when the treaty is in effect, they will be attacking Israel, who has the Antichrist as their protector, and he will go to war with them. And that is what is in view here. So you can read through the rest of of chapters 38 and 39 on your own in Ezekiel, but when you get to chapter 39, you see that God brings these nations against Israel, and then he takes care of them, right? He annihilates them, he punishes them. The sovereignty of God at work once again. So turn back with me to Daniel 11, if you're not already there. So this is the conflict. The king of the south comes and collides. King of the north brings his entire army against him, and what will be the outcome? Look at verse 40. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. And this is basically talking about the might of his army. He will not only defend This attack won't be successful against him. He will not only defend against this attack, but he will attack. This will awake the sleeping giant of the Antichrist and his forces, or at least give him an excuse to get out and use his army. Ezekiel 39 indicates that God will destroy the Russian forces with fire, and it's unclear as to whether he will somehow use Antichrist's forces to do that. Or if Antichrist will just be able to take advantage of the destruction that God has already brought upon them. But either way, Antichrist will win this fight. Verse 41. 
And he will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. So after he takes care of the north and the south, he doesn't quit. He enters the beautiful land, which again, what's the beautiful land? It's Israel. And I believe this is indicating an occupation now of Israel. More than just an alliance, he is assuming control over the land of Israel, possibly under the guise of protecting them still. But from there, he will continue to conquer other nations and dominate them, mostly, with mostly a southern push at this time. Because we read next that there are other nations to the south that are spared, it says, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Um, and they're not on the map, but those are down kind of in this area here. So those are spared. These nations are southeast of Israel, probably not worth his effort uh, because he will be busy with the African contingent down in the southwest area. Verse 42 says, then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. So now he pushes his way into Africa and Egypt will be a victim of his attack. It's hard to appreciate some of these things and, and talking about some of these nations since this is yet future, but we have to trust that the details given here are equally as accurate as what we had seen earlier in the chapter. And how these events will play out will be equally as impressive and precise as what we saw there. God's sovereignty will shine through here again, and the way in which he will providentially determine these events will be magnificent. But fortunately, as those who belong to his church we won't have to live through these events here because we'll already be raptured at this time. So we'll have to watch from the balcony or from the good seats, all this stuff that's going on. Verse 43. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So he will take what he wants. His victory will be complete. And you know that victory is yours when you get to take the spoils, right? When you, when, you, when you can take the spoils from someplace, that means that you're the one that won. And that's what he's doing here. And you notice that, that the Libyans and Ethiopians, it says, follow at his heels. And remember, we saw these two groups before in Ezekiel 38. They are from Put and Ethiopia. They have been dominated and have no choice now but to follow along behind him. Join us or die. And so they join in and the war machine grows. So as he's conquering these nations, they're following along with him now. But most likely by this time, we're already at the midpoint or past even the midpoint of the tribulation. And after he starts to take over the world by force, and it's at this point when he has already set himself up as God. He is in the land of Israel where uh, which is where he takes his seat in the temple and he starts to believe his own press. There is none that can oppose him. In his own mind, he must be God. What other explanation could there be for his success and his magnificence? He's going through, he's wiping out any nations that have come upon him to oppose him. And he's starting to think, there's no one that can stop me. I picture him at this point standing very much like Nebuchadnezzar, standing on his rooftop, surveying the kingdom of Babylon and saying, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Back in Daniel 4.30. That same type of arrogant attitude that will cause him to revel in his own majesty. But there are other events taking place at this time that we also need to keep in mind that most assuredly add to his delusion. And that is the judgments that are opened in Revelation 16 or Revelation 6 through 18. At this point, God starts pouring out these other judgments, and the world has to contend with all these other things going on as well. And most likely he will use that in some way to expand his power and take credit for much of what happens and incites the world against God and those who follow after him. And he will declare God to be public enemy number one. There will be a lot going on at that time. 
and there will be more uprisings. Look at verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, it says. He will hear about disturbing events, it says, from the east and from the north. Now, we're not really given any more details here. And so really, theories on this are kind of speculation, right? But this is all future, so we, we kind of speculate on a lot of it. But his response to what this news is will be to attack, so it's likely that these concern some sort of threat or attack against him, right? He, he, he's concerned about something from the east and the north, so probably something is threatening him. From the north, this is probably a resurgence of Russia, where they were not completely wiped out before, and so perhaps there's a regrouping or, or somebody else takes over that area. But the bigger question is, is the east, who is this from the east? So far we've talked about north and we've talked about south, but now we see the east. Well, it may be Persia or Iran, um, and they may have regrouped as well. But it's interesting that Persia and Iran before were referred to as being associated with the south. Um, so that's who they were allied with before. So you have to wonder if it's them regrouping, then why isn't it the south that's regrouping? But it's also possible this is, that this is an attack on a much larger scale. Revelation chapter 9 talks about a force that is 200 million in size. And there are very few nations that can produce a 200 million uh, man army. But one of those nations that could do that is east of Israel. Anybody have any idea what nation that could be? China. It's a pretty big country east of Israel, right? China is a nation that is also seen today as an ally with Russia and would fit, at least with the way the world currently aligns. China today boasts an active military of over 2 million, which isn't anywhere close to 200 million. I, I know that. But they have 1.4 billion people, and of that 1.4 billion people, they have over 600 million people that are considered fit for service. They are of the right age and physical ability to be conscripted into military service. And with the events going on at the world at that time, it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility to think that they would call up as many as they could, many of these fit for service people as they could. And that could be what's in view here. What I find interesting though, and this is just food for thought as well, is that east of Israel, there's also another country that could also put up these same kind of numbers. India actually has even more total military personnel than China, around five million, and they have almost 500 million in that fit for service category. Now with the current alliances and politics today, I don't know if it makes much sense that this would be India, but who knows what's gonna happen 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, we don't know when this is all gonna take place. But again, there's no way to be dogmatic about these things just yet, but what we can be dogmatic about is the outcome of his response to these rumors, whatever this is. It says, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So whatever he hears, his response is to attack, to go forth and destroy. And he will be again victorious. He will win again. And at this point in time, he will be the absolute ruler upon the earth, and there will be no question about that. He will be able to do whatever he pleases, and there's no one to stop him. Look at verse 45. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Where does he set up his government? In Israel, right? In Jerusalem. The holy mountain can be nothing here but Mount Zion. He sees, uh, or the seas he pitches uh, his tents between are the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. He has established himself as God by that point, most assuredly. That's what he declares himself to be. And keep in mind, by this point, we've definitely reached that midpoint of the tribulation, that point halfway through Daniel's 70th week, and he no longer would be honoring his alliance with Israel. In fact, 
He has already set up the abomination of desolation in the temple and the worst atrocities that Israel has ever seen are at this point occurring upon them. So things are really, really bad on the earth at this point. And that's the biggest probably understatement I could put. And what does this do? This sets the stage for the very end. Things will continue this way until the end of the tribulation where we have the end of Antichrist and the end of human authority on earth. Look at uh, the end of verse 45. I love the simplicity here. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. I like how these statements are short and to the point with very little fanfare. He will come to his end and no one will help him. To the world, he's important. To himself, he's extremely important. From a human perspective, he is a massive force to be reckoned with. But to God, he just ends him. He decides that his time is over. And he's done. And no one will be able to say or do anything about it. Two passages uh, that show this that I want to take a look at before we're finished today. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7 for just a minute. We saw a similarly brief statement there concerning his end in Daniel chapter 7. You look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and this here is the little horn, the Antichrist or the beast, same guy we're talking about in chapter 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. While he's standing there boasting and blaspheming God, he's slain. Body destroyed in the fire. This is short and sweet. Now remember, in Daniel 7, the beast here, specifically that he's talking about, this isn't the Antichrist himself. That was the little horn. The beast was the Roman Empire. But really, they're one and the same. The king is the kingdom. The kingdom ends, and so he ends. This is the end of his kingdom, end of him. So there's, again, there's no huge description of this. It's simply, he has accomplished the role for which God needed him And he's done. Now turn back with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And this is at the final battle of Armageddon. When the Antichrist is assembled with his massive army to do battle with Christ. He assembles the armies of the world. Remember, he's in charge at this time, right? Of everything. Everyone's following after him at this time. And come down to verse 19 of Revelation 19. It says, and I saw the beast, and this is the Antichrist, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So here they are, the Antichrist, he's taken over everything. He's in charge of the entire earth now. There are no more nations opposing him. He is leading the entire earth against God, and they are all assembled to fight against Christ at his second coming. How does it end? Verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. There's no battle here. There's no uncertain outcome. There's no edge of your seat, what's going to happen next moment. That's what we're all programmed to expect, right? Watching any action movie, any type of movie that you see today, we would all expect, oh, get out the popcorn, here's the final battle that's going to take up half the movie. No. We're ready for a great battle. There's no battle. This is a massacre. This is a slaughter. Even, even look at verse 21, which talks about the rest of his armies. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Christ wins, Antichrist loses, everybody else dies, end of story. That's this battle. With all of his arrogance, all of his authority, all of his abominations, his power and his might and his opposing God at every turn, Jesus Christ comes and ends him in a moment. That is the sovereignty and might of our Lord. And at this point, what comes next? The kingdom comes next. Turn with me one more time back to Daniel chapter 7, the very end of the chapter. I should have told you to keep a finger in there before. 
In verse 26, we see the little horn annihilated and destroyed forever. Then look what happens in verse 27, Daniel 7. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is the end of that 70th week. This is the end of the times of the Gentiles. This is at the end of time when God is punishing uh, his people and thus all Israel will be saved, given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That's what comes next. And that's what we'll see when we turn into chapter 12 in our, our next study. We will see what this means for Israel. We've talked about Israel a lot but they haven't really been mentioned much yet in this prophecy, but that will change when we get into chapter 12. It's truly amazing to see how God has all of this worked out perfectly. We are reading what is going to happen in the future. How can you not be impressed by, we're reading the future. We, we know what's going to happen in the future. He's telling us what he's going to do, and it's up to us to respond to that. We serve a mighty God indeed. And he will never fail us, he will never forsake us if we belong to him. When it's all said and done, in this prophecy, we read about two different types of people here, two different groups of people here. There are those that belong to him and there are those that don't. And in both cases, for both groups, there is a future that is certain. You either belong to him, forsaking your sin and trusting in the work of salvation that he has accomplished for you through the sacrifice and resurrection of his son, and therefore can be assured that you will spend eternity with him in glory. Or you don't. Not having put your faith in him for salvation, you can be assured that you will spend eternity separated from him in a place of eternal torment. And I pray that everyone here has made that decision to trust in him for salvation and that we will be spectators to the events that we see here in Daniel chapter 11, watching to see how God brings all this about someday in world history. Let's close in a word of prayer today. Dear Heavenly Father, the Lord, we come to you once again this morning and give you praise for just the truth of your word and for what we know uh, Lord, that we can trust in these things, that we know, Lord, that these things will be brought about someday. Lord, we look, at the, we look at your sovereignty, we look at the way that you work through, have worked through history, are going to work in the future, and Lord, we just, we just praise you for that. We thank you for who you are, we thank you for your, your sovereignty, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your authority and power and might, and we thank you, Lord, for just allowing us as your children to be... Um, a part of, of your family. We thank you, Lord, so much for um, all you do through us, every blessing that you give us, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that it would be our mission here on earth to be presenting the gospel to people, Lord, to be sharing the truth of salvation with others, Lord. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for um, coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins we thank you, Lord, for your resurrection, and we just pray, Lord, that again, as we, as we focus on that today, Lord, that, that we would be bold with the gospel as with those around us. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.